Hey guys, welcome back to Mount Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. Okay, Dylan, I have to ask you, if you were a hardcore outlaw biker, what would your nickname be? What would my nickname be? Yes. Mm, it would be Big Bone. Big Bone? Big Bone. Yes, ma'am. Good name for you. Thank you. If I was your old lady, what would my name be? Your name would be Little Devil. Satan. Yes, it would be. Little I hiss and... We'd call you Taz for short. Little Devil? Yeah. I okay. think that'd be good. I think Little Devil works. Or I could be Big Daddy Thick. You are a thick bitch. Yeah, with three C's. You need tempo. I do need tempo. Slow songs is for skinny hoes. That's true. Can't move all of this. You can't. You need tempo. I do need a lot of tempo. I know. I've seen you twerk. Okay, so, um, yeah, so why are we talking about outlaw motorcycle biker guys? Well, funny you should ask. We have one of the most explosive, fascinating cases of our mountain murders career. In fact, I got into this, like, rabbit hole. Yeah. You know that happens to me sometimes. You do that when you're researching. research, and then it, like, leads me to something else, and I end up, like, basically just spiraling out. It's what happened. But I found this case. It is fantastic. Yes. So all this talk about biker gangs is going to come into play here in a bit. Okay. I'm not going to say that we are part of that world. I think you and I have kind of been on the fringe of that world here and there. Yeah, we might have knew somebody that knew somebody. Perhaps. Because yeah. you've had some run-ins maybe with a few of these outlaw types. Yeah, I've had a thing or two happen when I was a little bit wild back in my younger years. And didn't you tell me a story about maybe your mom knowing some bikers back in the day? Yeah, I'm sure she could tell the story a lot better, but the, basically she was, a, you know, she was young once and uh, had her little party ways here and there, you know, a little drinking here or there, hanging out with some people. And she was hanging out with uh, this one group and they're like, oh, you know, and this one uh, friend of hers was like, um, my old man and the old lady this. And she's like, huh? You know, so she goes, checks them out, hangs out with them. Well, they were uh, a bunch of bikers and like a frat house style oh, like living. Oh, like a clubhouse? Situation. Yeah, like gotcha. a okay. bunch of people, roommating, living in this one big old house. And she would go kind of hang out with them and stuff a little bit here or there until she started seeing the real violence that was right around, always around the edges of these people. Things like uh, women slapped through the face and, you know, be late at night and a rag thrown at them and bitch goes shine my hog and a woman go shine all the chrome on a bike for three or four hours in the pitch black dark. Oh. Yeah. So she quickly decided that's not the type of friend she'd like to have. Yeah. I mean, your mom strikes me as a bit of a feminist. Yeah. I can't imagine that she's going to sit by quietly and watch this happen. No, she was definitely a, a flower child, if you will. And... uh yeah, you get these weekend warrior types, you know, that have the $50,000 pickup and they haul their box somewhere on a trailer and they got this, you know, cool, they have fun, you know, they call themselves bikers. But I think what we're talking about are real bikers, if you will. It's a fucking lifestyle. A lifestyle. They don't change. It's life on the road. Prison doesn't scare them. No. Kicking the shit out of strong-arming people, living hard and fast. The real one percenters. Much like Sons of Anarchy. Very and much. you were a big fan of that show, right? Yeah, it was badass. Yeah. I loved I didn't it. didn't really get into that much. Oh, I was all about some jacks. Well, I have to admit, there was the one guy, what was his name? Opie. Okay, okay. yeah. I would totally bone him. He's hot. Um, 
So I watched a few times just because I wanted to get in his panties. But then I heard he died, and then I was just oh, like, yeah, okay. God, everybody was devastated when Opie got killed. But he sacrificed himself for the rest of the guys. Because that's how fucking bikers do it. He's a sexy bitch. That's a big burly dude. He had that big beard. Yes. I mean, clearly I have a type. That actually helped launch Greg Holden's career into the mainstream. That song they used during Opie's funeral. I don't know what song that is. Oh, it's called... um. Shit, I don't know the title. Shit, I don't know the title. Yeah, it's that pretty like big. a fucking gem of a song right uh, there. But any fans of Sons of Anarchy out there know that song. Song of the year. Shit, I don't know the title. <laughs> You're goofy. <laughs> Anywho, let's move along. So why are we talking? And what what is your connection to the fringes of outlaw? Well, bikers? I've got a couple of connections. I'm actually still currently friends with some bikers. Oh, my God. And they maybe don't live this lifestyle now. They not about that life now. But they were, you know, in their younger days. Are you threatening me? I'm just saying I know some people. You're going to have me beat up? No. Nah, okay. I do, I do that myself. We tell them to bring it because I grew up on the mean streets of Shelltown, you know, Shelby, a, North Carolina. I'm feisty. I don't need anybody to fight my battles for me. I'm mm. scary. North Cackalacka. I'll bite somebody. Okay. On their ankles, because I'm like two feet tall. (laughs) She will bite a bitch. (laughs) Don't get it twisted. (laughs) Okay, so um, back when I lived in San Diego, I had connections to a motorcycle club. Now, they were primarily military members. Okay. So, it's not like these were one percenters. Right. However, they did party and hang out with other bikers in the area. Southern California, there's a big scene there. Oh, wow. That's in the heart of it. Yeah. There were bikers, and there was actually a Mongol oh. who would hang out and party. And I've heard some stories. Well, that's the real deal Bodies right there. in the desert, that kind of thing. Yeah, make yeah. you disappear. A little creepy. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, these are people that, like, they might be entertaining to interact with on occasion. In a bar. But they are not the kind of people you really want to be tight with, hang out with. No, that lifestyle just doesn't really appeal to me. I don't want to have to look over my shoulder right. and worry that someone's going to gun down my family. Well, see, that's the thing. Well, these types of real bikers, if you will, that we're talking about or going to be talking about, if you hang around them on a regular basis, you're inevitably going to be drug into their world. The chaos, the danger, the insanity, if you will. Yeah, I'm just not interested in leading that kind of life unless I'm in charge of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unless you're at the head of the chaos. I want to be the order giver. Okay. And that's about it. You want to be the shot caller. Yeah, I can't be like the the low person on the pole, you know what I mean? So you'd never make it as a prospect. Fuck no. And and those guys in California, they would fuck some prospects up. They would do some and some dumb shit. They would do shit like give them an envelope and tell them they had to drive from San Diego to Yuma, pick up a package, or drop a package off. Well, they didn't know what was in this envelope. Those motherfuckers would drive all the way to Yuma, Arizona, through the fucking desert, heat of the day, get there, hand off the envelope to another biker who'd pop it open, and it'd be a fucking stick of gum in there and shit. Oh, wow. Like, just fucking shit. Just to fuck with these dudes. Yeah, I don't think I could try that hard to be a part of a group. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be a part of any group that would have me as a member. I couldn't even rush a damn fraternity. Fuck you. Who are you supposed to be? Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyway, I got some more biker stories, but let's get on to this case because it is so fucking great. You always hear that cliche, you know, when you play with fire, you get burned. Yeah. There are many reasons a person might become involved in one of these sort of undersides of society. Maybe it's a bad childhood, addictions, or the simple thrill of being the badass in the room. Well, that can carry some... uh um, a luster or a lure to it, if you, you will. You walk into a room wearing your vest, your jacket, you've got your rocker, your cuts, as they call them. Yeah. And people are going to take note. <laughs> well, especially if there's six or seven of them and you're all big and burly. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that might be appealing or thrilling for you some. think that's sexy to women. Yeah. A little bit. Well, women like the bad boy. Yeah, and I guess there's nothing badder than a big, burly, muscled-up dude on a damn bike with, with a, a big beard and some tattoos big... all inked up. Wait a second. Vroom, vroom. Yeah, okay. Oh, I'm going to have to take a cold shower. Oh, is it me or did you get hot in here? Oh, it wasn't you. Oh. I always heard that you are the company you keep. Therefore, I never really wanted to be part of this scene. You're square. <laughs> I'm such a square. You're still square. I totally am. Okay. When you invest your time and efforts into a culture of crime and violent egos, your whole view of society's norms get skewed until you lose sight of your humanity. The case we're discussing today is so intense, multifaceted, and detailed, it might be hard to keep up with the motley crew and the cast of characters. But I'm going to try my best to weave one of the most fascinating stories that should be a Hollywood movie. And by the way, I'm willing to write the screenplay if I've got any financial investors this out there who want to back me. Totally could be a, a great movie in the right hands. It could be, right? I mean, yes. I've already like started casting the oh, stuff yeah? in my head and shit. Yeah. To understand this case, we're going to need a little background on some of the players involved. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm going to begin this tale talking about Joseph Eugene Vines, called Jojo by most who knew him. Now, Jojo is an interesting guy. He grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, then moved to West Virginia as a young child. His mother was a single mom to 18 kids. How do you even do that? I don't know. How could you even be pregnant that long, that much of your life? My vagina hurts just thinking about it. Did she literally pull a red water rider wagon behind her with her uterus in it? Probably. I mean, at this point, I feel like they just got to be falling out. Oh, my God. She probably doesn't even go into labor. She's just like, oh, there's another kid. <laughs> <laughs> They're like mogwais. You get them wet and they just multiply. Did you fart or birth? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they moved to West Virginia and she ended up fostering six more children. She's a dedicated woman. Now, Jojo never knew his father, but it wasn't like he lived a very lonely life with all of these siblings. Now, by 15, the family ended up in Florida, and we're kind of living on the wrong side of the tracks. I can't imagine you'd have a lot of money with that number of kids in the family. I couldn't imagine making it at all with that many kids. From an early age, he was kind of hanging out with the wrong crowd and getting swept up into... You know that, that group of kids, they're kind of streetwise. They know how to hustle, make a few bucks. Right. Get into a little bit of trouble. Well, I, don't, I can imagine mom had trouble keeping up with what all the kids are doing. 
So I could see him getting lost in the mix. When they get to Florida, he sort of starts hanging out with this scene of teenagers, young people who are using drugs. Some of the females are turning tricks. They're making a few quick bucks, maybe selling a little weed, stealing cigarettes, shoplifting, basically just kind of being young punks. Right. Some of them are even dying as young as 11 years old. My God. Vines, in any other situation, might have been a different person. He seemed to have potential, but more importantly, emotional maturity and a lot of compassion. When JoJo did witness an 11-year-old overdose, and then a teenage girl named Maria Lopez, that he was kind of crushing on, got served with a bad batch of mescaline. Yeah, I had to look that up and make sure that's uh, the peyote buttons off of a cactus. She ended up spending her life in a mental institution after this bad batch. It was then and there that JoJo decided these drug dealers should pay for the lives they had destroyed. At the age of 15, JoJo became a police informant. He set the dealer up who had hurt his two friends and was so good that he was offered a job. He would make a career of being a part-time cop, part-time criminal. See, uh, what I find interesting about that is a lot of time informants or, you know, they, they help the cops to help themselves. You know, they've gotten in trouble. They want to make their sentence less or take out rivals, you know, in a drug trade or something like that. But this, uh, this guy right here, it seems to come purely from his heart. Like, I'm going to stop these people that have hurt people that I've cared about, which yeah, is very and interesting. That's pretty much what happened. And to start at 15, that's amazing. The double life led him to different areas on the fringes of society's toughest players, including the Hells Angels. As an adult, he would marry a woman, his fourth wife, who had been a stripper in Chicago and the old lady of a Hells Angel. He met her while he was working a case and kind of rescued her from a bad situation. Okay, yes, yet again, the savior. Jojo would find himself in Asheville, North Carolina in July of 1981. He'd been given the name of an ATF agent assigned there. About one day in town or so, he reaches out to the agent stationed at the downtown Federal Building, schedules a meeting with the agent, and while he's talking to the guy, he is passed on the names of some Asheville detectives who might need his help. He waits a day or two before he calls those officers. He introduces himself, and they present him with an assignment pretty quickly. They can see he's a legit guy. Right, so he must have the look and everything he's, you know, his demeanor and what he's telling them maybe about what he's done before or how he feels about, you know, people that hurt people. JoJo does have the street cred, and he knows enough about the inner workings of the crime circuit, specifically the drug trade, to be an asset. Right. The detective tells JoJo about a man named Paul Harris. Harris was in the Army and therefore is kind of known as Sarge. All right. It's like his nickname. That's a cool nickname. He owns Sarge's Lounge in Asheville, which was located on Swannanoa River Road. So down near where the Trophy Club is. Oh. Isn't that what it's called? Or the Treasure Club? What's the name of that damn strip club in Asheville? Oh, I would not know that. Anyway, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably somewhere in that area. Well, it's not on the way to my church. <laughs> <laughs> it caters to a few bikers and maybe a place where drugs are sold. The detective asks JoJo to make a few small drug buys and keep an eye on the bikers who hang out there. 
The cops said they wanted to get some information on Sarge, but they needed enough to be able to make the arrest and actually have the charges stick. Right. They needed some evidence, like some hardcore, you know, this is happening kind of evidence. And two other guys, Gary Miller and Alan Hadaway, are also associates of Sarge. They want more information on these guys. Okay, so the cops can't get within 10 miles of this place without these roughnecks knowing they're cops. You know what I mean? There's no way they're going to infiltrate it without someone like JoJo. August 1981, JoJo makes his way to the bar and spends some months there hanging out, kind of getting to know everybody. You know, right off the bat, Sarge takes note of this guy. He's new in town. He is a pretty big dude. He's 6'6". He weighs about 240 pounds. Well, that's a good size youngin'. And completely bald, has the slick bald head, lots of tattoos. He looks like a biker. So he's going to stand out when he Got goes like in. like the kind of a handlebar mustache. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to notice this guy, especially when he pops up and, he's, you know, you've never seen him before. He comes into the bar. Sarge's like, hey, where are you from? The guy's like, yeah, I just came to town from Florida. They kind of get to know each other. Over the course of a couple of months... Sarge nicknames Jojo Kojak. Okay. Never really getting to know his real name, who he is, but just starts calling him Kojak because of Vine's shaved head. Right. And the fact that Kojak was such a popular TV show at the time. Jojo makes a few small drug buys, nothing too big, little maybe a little cocaine here, some pot here and there, just kind of making that connection. Just hanging out. Well, after a while, he tells Sarge that he needs some work, that he is looking to make a little bit of money. During his visits to Sarge's lounge, he notes that Sarge would often conduct backroom conferences with the two men, uh, Miller and Hadaway. Right. Now, Kojak had not been formally introduced to the pair. We're just going to call him Kojak from here on out. He had not been formally introduced to the pair, but he knew who they were just based on the description that the detectives had given him. Right. He's looking for a job. He explains to Sarge he needs to pick up some work. Sarge eventually hires him as a bouncer. I mean, the guy's six foot six, 240. Intimidating looking. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On December 22nd, Sarge asks him to join the three men in the back room. He introduces Kojak to the two other men, Miller and Hadaway, and explains that he needs some help scaring the hell out of somebody who owes him money. And I'm sure that uh, Kojak figured the back room's where the real stuff's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Kojak, of course, jumps on the offer, realizing this is his shoe in. This is how he is going to get in and get the goods. Right. He's told the next day to meet the men at a pizza hut. They give him directions somewhere near a mall off of Highway 70. Now, the three are going to be meeting a fourth guy there, and this is the person they need to scare the hell out of, a guy named Lonnie Gamboa. Here's a little background for you on these characters. Alan Hadaway is sometimes known as Red because he has the devil's red hair. (laughs) He's a ginger. He's also a drug dealer who collects debts for the outlaw motorcycle gang, sometimes a self-proclaimed hitman. He would often brag about throwing bodies in wood chippers. Oh, my God. Just like a real badass kind of guy. That just sounds like a really messy way. Even if he's like a piece of shit and he's lying. Right. He's just the kind of guy you didn't want to fuck with. 
So even if he's lying, he had an aura about him, someone you really don't want to mess with. Yeah. Okay, so maybe he's not lying. Exactly. He's from Salisbury, North Carolina originally, and was definitely known to be a member of the Outlaws. Oh. The motorcycle gang. Yeah. And also the KKK. Oh. Oh. Well, see, wow. You're like, he's an outlaw biker. And I'm like, okay. And then you're like, KKK. I'm like, ooh, that guy's, he's an asshole. Funny how that works. Gary Miller is a big time drug dealer in Asheville. He was known to deal cocaine, marijuana, Canadian blue Valium. Oh, it must be the good ones. Quaaludes and crank, which is meth by today's standards. Yeah, that was that trucker speed or some shit they called it back then. Yeah, but essentially meth. Yeah, well, I think it's turned into something a little different, but yeah, speed. In a six-month period, his financial records show he earned around $971,000, which in the early 80s was a fuck ton of money. That's a fuck ton of money right now. Well, it is, but back then it was a big fuck ton. That is uh, quite a bit of money. It was probably close to what, by today's value, maybe like $2 million or something? Well, yeah, I think you could almost give it about, I looked up the one number you threw out there. It's about a three times rate. The dollar? Yeah, like $100 nowadays would about be like $300 back then. So, yeah. So, yeah, you're looking at them uh, almost a few million dollars in a year. He was moving a lot of drugs into Western North Carolina. Right. Both men were definitely known to law enforcement. In 1979, Gary Miller and a man named Larry Duxtator. (laughs) That's a great name. It is. Were pinched for a misdemeanor larceny charge in Madison County, North Carolina. Duxtator informed on Miller as a drug dealer. And by March 1980, Duxtator is missing. He disappeared and has never been seen nor heard from again. So don't fuck with Miller. He's just fallen off the face of the earth. Hathaway was also a suspect in the murder of a man named Charles Tweed in Madison County. So these are two bad guys. Yeah, and that guy's there. He's moving a lot of drugs. You're not talking about an ounce of pot here or, you know, a couple of grams of coke. They're moving truckloads. I mean, that serious weight, it sounds like. Lonnie Gamboa, the man they were meeting, was from Colorado originally. He had not been in Western North Carolina, but for maybe just a few years. So definitely, like, not a native. He had held several jobs and was, at the time, working in trucking and selling wholesale produce with a friend. Hello. Because that seems like a legit job, right? Well, yeah, I guess. Somebody's got to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Kids need their fruits. (laughs) It just seems wholesale produce is like another way to launder money. Uh, Yeah, you never know, I reckon. It just seems like a scheme. I don't know. Also, he was dabbling in the world of drugs, the drug trade. At the time of this meeting at Pizza Hut, Gamboa owed $120,000 to Miller. That's That's a large amount. It is a large amount. They meet up at Pizza Hut Hadaway and Miller confront Gamboa about the money he owes. Now, Miller says there's a total of $380,000 that they need to come up with. But Gamboa's part is $120,000. Gamboa's going to argue and say, no, 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 it's more like thirty grand." Okay, so I'm going to venture to guess they fronted him a large amount of product. Yep. He's going to sell it, pay off what he owes. Something's not went right. That is something exactly like what we're talking about. Okay. (laughs) 
he tells Hathaway he's willing to make a deal. He wants to make good on this money he owes. In other words, don't kill me. <laughs> he agrees to sign over two acres of property, a trailer, like a single wide, and a van to Hathaway. You know, because he wants to make good on these debts. Gamboa swears he's going to call his lawyer the next day, which is the 23rd, and have the titles and deeds transferred. Hathaway tells him he'll call him later and give him a name to put on the deeds. Right. And they'll work out the details. He also tells him to make copies of some court documents from an earlier arrest, which is November the 7th, and we're going to get into that right now. See, in November... A Moffat Branch shootout puts the trio on police radar. Miller's house was on Moffat Branch. Two men, Clayton Boggess and James Anthony, show up at Miller's home, unload bullets into the house over some kind of drug beef. Okay. Nearly a hundred rounds are fired. No one is injured, which is by some miracle. That's a lot of shots. Police raid the property. They seize 50 weapons, $12,000 in cash, and $250,000 in cocaine. Okay, so now the cops are like, yay, we found a large drug operation. Miller is arrested. Hathaway manages to escape this drug raid. Other Buncombe County properties were also raided at the time. So Gamboa is arrested at a motel that's nearby. And another man, Thomas Forrester, is also arrested on drug charges in connection with this November 7th raid. Wow. Now, like I mentioned, Hathaway escapes. He goes to Chicago where he's put up in a motel by a woman named Tony Summers. She's the old lady of his friend Westside Tommy Stymick, a big to-do with the Chicago outlaws, and we'll get more into him later. (laughs) Eventually, Miller, Forrester, and Gamboa are out on bail. Miller and Hathaway know that Gamboa owes the money, and they're also beginning to suspect that someone is a rat. Right. They feel it could be Gamboa or maybe Forrester. That's why Hathaway was demanding that Gamboa get the court documents so they can read through it and see, you know, if they can figure out who the rat might be. If there might be some witness statements, some evidence, some sort of notation. Or, yeah, someone saying, yeah, that's a pretty good idea, actually. Later, Gamboa would tell Hathaway he thought Miller was the rat. The next day, Jojo, a.k.a., you know, Kojak, is called by Sarge and asked to go on a job. He's going to go pick this Gamboa guy up and take him to the River Lounge where Hathaway is waiting. Gamboa brings along the court copies which he complains cost him $317 to make copies of all these court documents. That's a lot of copies. Well, you were saying that in today's dollars, that was almost 900 bucks. Yes, that was that was over, eight, yeah, almost $900 in copies, which he, is a shitload of paperwork. Well, he has them in like a brown type of envelope. And apparently the whole car ride to this river lounge, he's just bitching about this money he spent on these copies. Well, it's a good chunk of money. He's really pissed off that, you know, he had to do it. But I'm like, dude, if it's your life or making some fucking copies, make the copies. Yeah, no but doubt. But I guess here he is spending almost a thousand bucks when he owes, what, 30000 120000 Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's like, just make the copies, dude. This might not be a good time to be complaining about paying for the copies. Kojak and Gamboa arrive at the bar. When they go inside, Hathaway's there. 
He asks if they can just go back, sit in the car for a little bit. He wants to read through this paperwork, but he doesn't want anyone else to know their business. Right. I mean, this is not something he wants to be, you know, skimming over in this bar. Well, it doesn't sound like a few papers in a folder. There could be, you know, eyes and ears. He just wants some privacy. They go outside. Hathaway and Gamboa slide into the back seat. Kojak sits in the driver's seat. Immediately, Miller drives up, jumps in the back seat, kind of sandwiching Gamboa between Mil- you know, himself and Hathaway. Right. So they've kind of got him there. Classic move. Miller has a gun pointing at him. When he looks over, Gamboa sees Hathaway has a gun pulled. And the whole time, Miller's screaming at him, asking him, why are you calling me a rat? Why are you saying I'm the rat? Right. Hathaway and Miller hold him at gunpoint. They realize that Gamboa has a gun on his body. So they get his gun. They put it in the floorboard. And that's when they tell Kojak to take some tape and secure his hands and feet, basically. Now, if I was Gamboa, I would point out that if you shoot me, you're going to shoot him because they've created a crossfire situation. (laughs) (laughs) Kojak takes the tape. He secures Gamboa's wrists, feet. Then they tell Kojak that he's going to be driving and they're going on a little road trip. Of course, Gamboa is begging for his life, promising he's going to pay money. He'll give them property. I'll do whatever. Yeah. You know, he's scared out of his mind. Hadaway tells him they're going to take him to Virginia to meet the big man. Holy shit. Then they shove him in the trunk of the car. Oh, my God. Kojak is instructed to drive. So he gets on the Blue Ridge Parkway and drives. They give him directions, tell him where to go. They end up in a secluded kind of wooded area off the beaten path near Laurel Springs, North Carolina, which is in Ashe County but fairly close to the Virginia line. Now, could you imagine being in the trunk after you've been threatened this way and basically all these rough, tough, serious characters? I would be pissing my pants if I'm Gamboa. Uh, Yeah, not to mention that you're not sure where you're being taken. No. If you're driving on the parkway, it's probably a curvy it, road. It's all curvy. You're probably being... Beaten all the hell. You're in the slinging trunk. around in the trunk. It's probably a big trunk of you know one of those big square older cars. Who knows what kind? You know, yeah. Oh my god, what could be going through I'm your head? I'm claustrophobic too, so I can't imagine being locked in a trunk. No, I would freak the fuck That's out. That's not going to work for me. No. Now, once they arrive at this property, it's a junkyard. That's going to really help your spirits when the trunk opens and you're in a fucking scary ass junkyard. So there's like a big sprawling junkyard, a garage. But it's out. It's rural. It's secluded. This nice. is the kind of place where ain't nobody around, probably for miles. Not good. Gamboa is forced out of the car at gunpoint by Kojak. Miller has given him the gun, instructs him, you hold this gun on him and don't let him get away. Miller puts handcuffs on one of Gamboa's wrists. So just the one hand. He and Kojak walk Gamboa up behind the garage, kind of up a hill area, and they find a tree where they handcuff his hands around the tree. All right. So he's like handcuffed to this fucking tree. Yeah. And you said it's cold, right? It's December. So, yeah. And they're in Ash County, which is 
the northern that, part nor- of the yeah. mountains. Right. And it's fucking cold up there. This is up like around Boone and shit. Okay, so and that's where they get actual good snow still. Cold. Right. They just tell him they're going to go inside the garage, decide his fate, and when they figure out what they want to do with him, they'll come back for him. And leave him handcuffed to a tree. Yeah, how fucking uncomfortable is that shit? That sounds horrible and scary as fuck. The men go into the garage. Inside, Kojak is introduced to a man, Paul Wilson Bear. And they call him Papa Bear. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. He's a mechanic, also a drug dealer. He runs the junkyard and owns the property. Hadaway skims through the court paperwork and gives Papa Bear some names and asks him, hey, can you run these for me? All right, so I guess Kojak's making note of all these moves they were making. Papa Bear gets on the phone, and Kojak can hear a few names being thrown around. At some point, he hears the name Joseph Vines. So Papa Bear has a real connection. Papa Bear asks, does anybody know Joseph Vines? I mean, you know at this point, Kojak's butthole pucker factor has got to be like 11. It goes all the way up to 11. That's literally like a scene of a movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. And so this whole time they've known him as Jojo and just start calling him Kojak. And they have no idea. Well, actually, kind of off the rip, they, you know, started, right. started calling him Kojak. So they don't even really right. know. But then Jojo's the only is... other thing they knew. They didn't know anything about Joseph Vines. Yeah. And they don't even really know that his name's Jojo. Oh, okay. So, so basically, point, they just like, oh, you look like Kojak. just been calling him Kojak since kind of day one. But to hear his name come out of their mouth and them asking each other if they know Joseph Vines, I would shit myself. Oh, he would later say that he was, like, scared out of his wits. I'm sure. That he was just trying so hard not to just sit there and shake. Right. Nervous wreck. Well, no one knows Vines. Miller and Hathaway, they don't know the name. Gamboa, as I mentioned, is this small-time drug dealer who's now in debt to the wrong people. I mean, you know he's out there. Handcuffed to this tree thinking, For hours. I fucked up. Yeah. Scary. Nothing he can say. He's offered everything he has left to make good, and they're not having it. About six hours have passed. Now, at this point, they've run out for food. They've been on the phone. They've been inside, kind of shooting the shit. Might have had some beers. Talking, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Done some drugs. So, they finally go outside. They bring Gamboa into the garage. Now, at this point... He is freezing, shivering. I mean, he he's so cold, he can barely talk. Right. They offer him food. He's not hungry. They do give him some coffee. He's just trying to, like, warm up with this hot coffee. He's probably in the first stages of hypothermia. They ask him a bunch of questions. He tries his, his best, you know, to answer all the questions, but he's just claiming, I'm not a rat. I don't know anything. I don't know these people you're asking me about. I mean, he's freaking out. I don't blame him. Hadaway asks him how much marijuana he has at home. Gamboa tells him he has like maybe around two pounds. He's not sure. Hadaway then tells Gamboa to call his wife Sharon and instruct her to take the remaining drugs to a drop-off location, which is at like a gas station. And somebody's going to go and retrieve the remaining drugs. So yeah, whatever you got left of my product, I want it back now. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Gamboa makes the call. His wife packs everything up, leaves Asheville, heads to this drop-off location. And she's probably like, why are you always ignoring me for your friends? <laughs> they're, my, uh, they're not my friends, honey. 
what I thought was very interesting is I stumbled upon a newspaper article with Sharon Gamboa where she says her husband wasn't a drug dealer, didn't have any ties to these people other than he used drugs occasionally. Right. Okay. So. And that it wasn't until he started like using cocaine that he had any ties to these people. But she's going to claim in this newspaper article that basically her husband is completely innocent. He just did a little drugs here or there, but never was a drug dealer or any kind of a player. Right. But it's kind of funny because during her testimony yeah, later in court, she's a goddamn liar. She knew exactly what the fuck her husband was doing. Well, on the level, her husband sounds like he was doing it. If you owe someone $120,000, $300,000 or whatever, that's a lot of drugs. That's not just personal use. There's no way. Well, I know I read one thing about how earlier, so this is all taking place in December, and I guess it was sometime maybe like around Labor Day, that he had been given like 5,000 Valium. Oh, that's a shitload of pills. Yeah. I'm going to guess. So that's just an example of the level, I mean, he's still kind of a small time dealer. Right. In the grand scheme of things, but... Compared to those guys. But he's moving some product. But he's not just some street-level guy who's hooking up a couple of buddies. Right. Right. Like, hey, man, I'm going to sell you this dime bag of weed. No, he's literally got, like, big wads of drugs. And there's it's hard to believe that she didn't know of any of that. Yeah. Well, once the phone call to Sharon is made, the four men load Gamboa up in the car. They blindfold him. Then they drive him about five miles away to this dirt road, again, seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Papa Bear pushes Gamboa out of the car and tells Kojak to follow him. They push through a wire fence and make their way through the darkness, kind of out in the woods. I mean, you know that Kojak and this Gamboa guy are probably scared chillas at this point. Well, yeah, and Kojak... They don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of like they probably know, but they don't want to know. Right, and then you had Papa Bear on the phone talking to some kind of, who knows, a cop or something, having names run, and to say Joseph Vine's name. So I'm sure he's still still on edge about that. So who knows what's going to happen. So they approach this area in the woods, and you know, it's dark. It's late at night. It's fucking cold as shit outside. But there's like a hole, like oh, a wow. big hole in the middle of the earth. Okay. Kojak is not sure what's happening, but he sees one of the other men approaching with a shotgun and it's kind of pointed like it, you know, himself and Gamboa. Oh my God. Kojak, knowing that this is further than he's ever gone before, is scared out of his mind and, as you can imagine, in a panic. Who wouldn't be? He doesn't know what he's going to do. Bear tells him to push this man down in this hole. You need to push him in there. Kojak freaking out. (laughs) And he's like, knowing it's either him or me. Right. At this point. They've got a gun on me. These are people who are not fucking around. Right. I'm going to have to do this to survive. Well, it sounds like this whole thing spiraled out of control. Yeah. More than he wanted to be involved in. Wrong place, wrong time. I've gotten in too fucking deep. Oh, yeah. He pushes Gamboa down into this hole. Gamboa ends up like getting hung up on something, roots or branches. He's screaming and crying for help. 
He's telling him, I think my leg's broken. Bear tells Kojak to pull him back up and hands him some sort of like tree branch or something. And Kojak manages to kind of put the branch in and eventually pull Gamboa back up. He's screaming, please don't kill me. I don't want to die. I think my leg's broken. Fucking movie. This is a fucking movie. (laughs) Bear then tells him to throw the man down the hole again and this time do it good. Oh, my God. So, I mean, that's scary as this all sounds. That's almost comical that he tried to throw this guy in a hole. He gets hung up. He's screaming. He's hurt. He has to pull him back out of this hole and then directed to get him in the damn hole this time. Talk about traumatizing. That is insane. After the deed is done, Bear and Miller discuss how many bodies are in the hole. Miller says it's 23 when Bear says, what is that, number 22? He's like, no, 23 now. Wow. Then Bear says, well, that man didn't go down as easily as the last one did a few weeks ago. Jesus. In the car, Bear goes through Gamboa's wallet, which he had kept, and he hands Kojak $60. He tells him, I'm going to give you some more money, but it'll be at the first of the year when the money comes in. All right. I'll pay you some more then. So they're paying him a little bit for his services. He also informs the men that they can use Gamboa's ID. He's got this scam that he can run to make the police think Gamboa's still alive. It's amazing. These guys are have their fingers in a lot of different stuff, it sounds like. But yeah, these are some serious criminals. These are, or, yeah, this, this is like a criminal. Organized criminal enterprise. Yeah, this is no bullshit. They drop Bear back off. And Miller, Kojak, Hadaway drive back to Asheville. Kojak is given another $50 from Miller. Miller gives him 50 bucks and tells him, go buy your wife something nice for Christmas. Wow. When Kojak sees Sarge the next day, Sarge greets him with a huge hug and a kiss and tells him, welcome to the family. You're going to make so much money. Oh, so now he's in for real. Kojak knows he needs to get in touch with his ATF contact. It's the holidays, and he cannot reach the guy by phone. He leaves message after message. He reaches out to multiple officers. He figures that Papa Bear has a contact in the Asheville PD, and that's how his name came up. He's not sure who he can trust, but he knows he really needs to talk to the ATF agent. Right, because he feels like he's removed from the local law enforcement. And if he tells him his suspicions, he'll be able to keep them their meetings and, and information self-contained, I guess. Now, it would later come out that on December 22nd, Gamboa did have an appointment to meet with a Buncombe County Sheriff's deputy to discuss the information he had on Miller and Hadaway. He was a rat. And even if he hadn't talked, he would have talked. Okay. Well, that doesn't still doesn't make it okay for them to kill him, but I guess at least they weren't wrong. By January 4th, 1982, Kojak is on the edge. He's afraid he's going to be discovered by Sarge and these criminals, but he's also scared that he participated in the murder of Gamboa. Right. It is on this date, January the 4th, that Miller and Kojak are leaving a bar together and they're stopped by police. They get blue lighted. Of course, at this point, Kojak is thinking like, oh shit. This is it. Right. Miller is told he is under arrest for the kidnapping of Darlene Callahan and Thomas Forrester. 
Kojak is told he doesn't have any warrants. You're free to go. And if you need a ride, one of our officers will take you wherever you need to go. Wow. So now we're going to conclude episode one. That's right. This is a two-parter. My God. The story goes on and on and on. Jesus. It gets crazier, wilder. I don't even know. More shocking. I don't even believe this is real. It's so crazy. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll bring you the second part very soon. I'll just tell you, my mind's reeling. Is it? Yes, (laughs) it is. Well, stick around. We've got a second part coming up. Don't forget, we also have tickets on sale right now for Mountain Murder's very first live show. It's going to take place January the 18th at Fleetwoods in Asheville, North Carolina, which is wonderful considering we're talking about Asheville right now. Yes, if you're here in the area and uh, you can come out and uh, hang out with us for an evening, those tickets are already starting to go, surprisingly enough to us. If you order them online through brownpapertickets.com, you're going to get those for 10 bucks. If you wait until the day of the show, get them at the door, they're going to cost 12 Yes, and if you don't like buying tickets at all, if you become a t- our top-tier patron at $10 a month, you get free admission to all our live events. Definitely. So stick around. We've got episode two coming your way shortly.